he does such a good job. And that's Robert Downey Jr. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with his backstory, but I mean, there was a point in time where Robert Downey Jr. was an absolute train wreck. I mean, he was one of the most talented people in Hollywood, but he had substance abuse problems, and so he was always going off the rails. He couldn't keep a job, and um, he really hit a low point about 2003. Um, where he just could, I mean, he was about to lose his home. He was about to be out on the streets and Mel Gibson, who was kind of at the height of his popularity, decided that he was, um, going to give Robert Downey Jr. A role that was designed and designated for him. And his only request was, if you receive this, I want you to be able to pass it on to someone on down the line. And so as fate would have it or providence as you would have, um, Mel Gibson fell out of favor with Hollywood. I mean, he absolutely lost favor, right? I mean, he had a DWI and there were some racial slurs and there was some domestic violence. And so he's kind of been a, a black sheep in Hollywood. And so in 2010, Robert Downey Jr., and I want to read just a little portion of that, decided that he was going to make good on his promise um, to kind of pay it forward as you would. He was receiving an award for um, his acting um, success, and this really was like a lifetime achievement award, and he decided that he was going to have Mel Gibson present it to him. And this is, this is the words that Robert Downey Jr. used to describe Mel Gibson. He said, he said, actually, I asked Mel to present this award for me for a reason, because when I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope. And he urged me to find my faith. It didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was rooted in forgiveness. And I couldn't get hired, so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him. And he kept a roof over my head and he kept food on the table. And most importantly, he said that if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoings, if I embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus as he calls it. He said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, that I would become a man of some humility and that my life would take on new meaning. And I did, and it worked. And all he asked in return was that someday I would help the next guy in some small way. It's reasonable to assume that he didn't think the next guy would be him or that day would be today. So anyway, on this special occasion, I humbly ask that you join me unless you are completely without sin in case which you pick the wrong profession in forgiving my friend his trespasses, offering him the same clean slate that you have offered me, allowing him to continue with his great and ongoing contribution to our collective art without shame. He has hugged the cactus long enough. And the reason that I bring that story to our attention as we look at Isaiah 61, I mean, that was a word of hope and a word of forgiveness um, that brought about real change. I mean, I've seen the video clip of this exchange. You can imagine Mel Gibson who is experiencing the reproach and the shame of Hollywood and what it means to kind of be at the top and fall to the bottom. And he received that message of hope 
and forgiveness. And that's exactly what Isaiah 61 verse 3 is all about. It's, a, it's this word of forgiveness that's supposed to take away the reproach of our sins. Right? Isaiah 61 verse 3 is for people that feel stuck. Right? Stuck in patterns of sin. Stuck and think that they can't change in particular ways. Isaiah 61 is also just this picture of hope for us where we're going to be able to see Jesus Christ in all of his mercy. This also is a passage for people that are undergoing real and genuine human sorrow. It could be sorrow over your own sin and your own brokenness and the effects that it has on other people. It can be sorrow that you're experiencing just as the, a part of living out life in this fallen world. I mean, Isaiah 61 has something to say to all of us. Maybe you don't find yourself in either of those camps, but our city is filled with people like that. So for us to be able to be good missionaries, we want to be familiar with the antidote and the cure to sorrow and suffering. And his name is Jesus. And that's exactly who comes into focus in Isaiah 61. So let's take a look at our Savior We're going to focus on verse 3 this morning. If you could stand with me, I'm going to read, though, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 for context. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress Instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, we want Isaiah 61 to be true in our midst. We don't want this to be a mere historical truth, but we want it to be personal and real. I ask that by the power of the Spirit that you would make it specific, that you would make it powerful, and that our vision of Jesus would grow as the result of seeing this passage Father, to do that, we need you to send the power of the Holy Spirit. We just naturally don't see the things that you want us to see apart from you. So please help us. Please help me to proclaim this word. Help me to proclaim it with clarity and with compassion and with love and in the spirit of Isaiah 61 so that our church is built up and our city is built up. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you remember a little bit, if you were here last week, Isaiah 61 is an Old Testament picture of Jesus, right? If there's any doubt about who 
Isaiah is talking about Jesus in his very first sermon in Luke chapter 4. says, you know, Isaiah 61, he reads a part of it. He says, that's me. This is about me. So we can very clearly and very purposely apply this to, to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so this morning we're going to look at verse 3. And we're going to look at what is really the, the transforming work of the gospel. Last week we looked at the, the aspect that the work of Jesus frees us and heals us. Today we're going to look at the truth that the good news of Jesus actually strengthens us, right? God's um, plan for us is not merely just to forgive us and to heal us. He actually is building us into something. You may not feel that way as you've arrived here this morning, but the, the simple fact of the matter is, is if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he is actually making you and building you into something. And that's what comes to view in Isaiah 61. What we see in Isaiah 61 is God's commitment to change us, right? I'm not talking about our commitment to change us. Those two things are radically different, are they not? Right? This isn't about our self-discipline. This isn't about our self-effort. This isn't about our to-do lists or all the ways that we hope that we can change. This is actually about God himself pledging himself to his people that he actually will change them. And we see that as he changes us at the end of verse 3 that he's going to be glorified. So the way that God builds us up and the way that he grows us and the way that he changes us actually glorifies him. It literally means it shows his beauty to the world. So even if they are incremental steps that, that is taking place in your life because of Jesus Christ, the, the truth of this verse is that God is glorified as he is making you into something that's beautiful. And what I love about Isaiah 61 is this isn't um, a, a picture that glosses over the past, right? This isn't Isaiah and God somehow waving a magic wand, kind of doing an abracadabra and just kind of switching circumstances on people. No, this is, this is a picture of hope that deals squarely with the idea of our past. I mean, this, this is rooted in human experience. And this is where... Like, I mean, this can go one of two ways for us here this morning. Like, this can be very real and very specific to where you live, right? And we can ask the Spirit to help us to grow. Or we can just kind of stay at a superficial level and say, you know, that was cool that Isaiah had some promises for those kinds of people. But for us, we're just going to make it through this next hour, right? I mean, so... In these, in these moments, this has to be real, this has to be personal, this has to be where you live. What comes into focus in verse 3 is the reality of our past. And in particular, the way that our past haunts us, right? The way our past haunts us and it also taunts us and it also... Um, exerts a real power in the present, right? The, the reason that the, our pasts are such a big deal is because they begin to bear fruit in the present, right? The lie that we all tend to believe is that our past determine our present experience of God, right? Our own 
relationship with him is tied to everything that has gone on in the past. And that's very important. That's the reason that Isaiah doesn't gloss over that. And ultimately, Jesus doesn't do that because he wants us to be free from the chains of the past. Because it's a real temptation, no matter who you are this morning, to allow your past to affect every day. So he wants to speak a word of good news to us specifically about our past. I mean, the original readers, they would have been experiencing real hopelessness. I mean, this is a group of people that knew that they had blown it, right? They had been caught red-handed by God himself. They knew that they had failed to be the people that God had called them to be. In particular, uh, the people of Israel were called to kind of be a light to the nations. And they were supposed to show the whole world what God's glory was like. But instead of doing that, like, and one of the specific ways that are kind of on display in the book of Isaiah is they were supposed to show God's kindness and his glory by caring for the poor. And instead of actually caring for the poor, they spent their whole lives exploiting the poor. So these were a group of people that knew that they had blown it. They knew that they had failed. They were exposed and they were vulnerable. Have you ever been there? Right? Have you ever been in that moment where your sin is on full display? Where you can see it? On the face of those that you love the most, right? That's what this is written for. It's written for moments like that. It's written for our consciences that can't forget the sins that we have committed, right? The past that's bearing um, fruit in the present. This good news message is written for that, And what's amazing is for people that are caught red-handed, for people that feel vulnerable and exposed before God, it's, it's a very tender moment, is it not? The next word that you hear from God. So God could have said, but he didn't. I told you so. Like, he didn't do that. Then say, if you would have listened to me and if you would have cleaned up your act and if you would have just maybe marched in a straight line a little bit better, you wouldn't have found yourself in this place. That's not what God says at all. To people that are brokenhearted and wounded over their sin, to those with sensitive consciences, this is what he says. Look at verse 3. Hear it with new ears. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, Instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It's amazing that we get to serve a God that is committed to speaking good news to people that are caught red handed. So if you find yourself here this morning with a sensitive conscience, (laughs) being exposed, feeling vulnerable, hear the good news from God. He's going to make your life into something beautiful. It's not as if sin is not real and it's not true. It's just not what is most true compared to what God has given us in and through Jesus. Now, I read this powerful article that illustrates this this week from Mockingbird magazine. It is a 
a wonderful story by Michael Leary. He tells the story of a husband and wife. But you don't have to be a husband and wife to understand this. I mean, there's real forgiveness that's taking place in this article. But Michael Leary tells this personal story of, of how his wife wanted to have a talk. You guys, you know, that can be dangerous territory for a guy. Like if, if your wife says, hey, can we talk, right? And so he writes about that experience because it highlighted forgiveness and what it looks like on the ground. And I I want us to benefit from it. So I'm going to read uh, a lengthy portion. So to kind of get at the idea of forgiveness, Michael Leary's wife decided that they were going to sit down and they were going to try to recount all of the good things that happened in their marriage. So that's, that's the context. And this is what he said. He said, my wife recently insisted that we sit down and make a list of her happy memories together. This is precisely the kind of activity that makes even well, most well-meaning husbands cringe inwardly. It involves a lot of talking. Its objectives are unclear. It's the kind of conversation that can go downhill quickly. It apparently requires notebooks that are covered in flowers like the one that my wife had selected for the exercise. It is well outside the average male emotional wheelhouse. And if you're married, you have been there. He says, I was also suspicious because the list that my wife and I tend to give are those that any marriage accrues. Records of the imagined slights and shortcomings that allow us to quietly nurture our resentments over time. But I played along and we began digging through the past. So... What they're doing is they're talking about their marriage. They're talking about the happy memories. But the husband is suspicious at best. So this goes on. He says, despite this methodological thrill and steady accumulation of genuinely good memories, I was still suspicious. I was not quite sure where all this was headed until my wife closed up the notebook. Now hear this. Okay. These are our memories, and they are really good memories. From now on, this is our past. So that they recounted all of the good memories, and they said, this is our past. The carefree abandon of her tone took me by surprise, as she is not really given to pronouncement of this level of optimism. We just as easily could have made an equal or longer list of horrible memories together. We have survived entire stretches of adulthood by the skin of our teeth. The wounds of many of these memories are still fresh or at least tender to the touch. My wife was not trying to be dishonest about our past. She was simply being creatively decisive about which memories would serve as the backbone of our story. Which part of our script would be emphasized as we continued to act out the drama of our relationship. So hear this. God is not fuzzy about our past. Okay? He is decisively deciding to remember the truth of Isaiah 61 as the backbone of our relationship. It's not as if our sin is untrue, but what is more true is that we have a redeemer and we have a rescuer and his name is Jesus. So what 
forms the backbone of our relationship with God is not our faithfulness, but his, right? It's not our performance, but his. And so what God chooses to remember in our place for all the people that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ is the record of Jesus Christ. So that's good news for those of us that sorrow, that experience real and genuine sorrow. So let's, let's kind of take this a step further. What does this kind of forgiveness look like on the ground? It says, look at verse 3 with me. To grant, and that's to give as a gift, to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. So what Isaiah is doing there is using some powerful imagery, right? One is a beautiful headdress. This is a picture of a headdress from a Middle Eastern wedding, right? An event that causes great celebration. And he's contrasting it with ashes. Like all throughout Scripture, ashes are associated with mourning. Ashes are associated with being at the bottom. Ashes are associated with being grieved right? Ashes are identified with being undone. It's, it's literally saying that I feel so low to the ground that I'm going to identify with the dust of the ground. So those are the two things that are being contrasted in Isaiah 61 verse 3. This picture of a headdress and this picture of ashes and what it communicates couldn't be more beautiful to the people of God. What he's saying in Isaiah 61 verse 3, because of Jesus, the things that cause you the greatest sorrow, right? The sorrow that you experience personally over your sin, the sorrow that you experience as a part of living out life in this fallen world, those things are going to be the cause of your greatest celebration. Is everybody awake? That's good news, okay? The fact that God himself is going to take the things that cause you the greatest sorrow and then he's going to turn it into something beautiful, that's amazing news for the people of God. And we all have those things that cause us sorrow. So what does that mean for us this morning? It means don't despise the ashes. We all have them. The ashes of our lives are the building blocks of something beautiful. So where are the ashes in your life right now? Those are the very things that God is going to use. Those are the very things that God is going to redeem. Those are the very things that he is going to make something beautiful in your life. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the reason that Jesus came. So don't despise the ashes. That doesn't mean that you're always going to understand everything and why everything happens. But it does mean that as you walk out life in the low place, as you experience humility and humiliation as the fact of living out life in this present world, that God will be with you, that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you, and he will turn what is broken and make it beautiful. That's good news for us. So don't despise the ashes. But it also means that if you are in the low place this morning, if you find yourself grieving, if you find yourself experiencing real sorrow over your sin, don't give up. 
right? God is promising to his people that as long as you have breath in your lungs, that he is going to make something beautiful out of your story. So don't give up. And it also means (laughs) for the rest of us, don't look down on someone that's in a low place. Don't look down on someone that is has been made aware of their sins or is experiencing life in a fallen world. I mean, our our first temptation when we see that happen in our lives is to wonder what in the world's going on with our relationship with God. But when we see it with in other people, don't we tend to assign like moral blame to those things? Right. I mean, we become self-righteous. We become just in, in, in a game of comparison. So we don't want to look down on those that are in the low places. He's going to give to those who mourn. He's going to take the things that cause you the greatest sorrow to bring you the greatest joy. So what's on display is the, the frailty of being human. We're all going to have those mountaintop experiences and we're all going to have the valley and, and this is one of the things I love about Christianity is I think that it above all religions takes the problem of evil seriously, right? It doesn't gloss over the, the problem of pain. This is the most real raw book that I know of, right? And so I, I want to read this quote from C.S. Lewis. And he's, he's talking about Christianity, especially uh, in comparison to pantheism which is really something like um, Hinduism, where everything is God and God is in everything. And he's saying this about Christianity. He says, confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you realize that this also is God. The Christian replies, don't talk nonsense. For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks that God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as man makes up the story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world and that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. So Jesus coming into the world is the loudest possible statement from God that he cares about evil and suffering in the world. Christianity, in its essence, is about fixing what is broken, turning what's broken into something beautiful. And the measure of that is God's own son, Jesus. So we can have confidence if you find yourself in the low place. But then I I want us to move on to the next part of the verse. It says... To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So what I also want you to understand is God's not just concerned about delivering you from your external circumstances, which he totally does, totally cares about. But he also is about inward transformation in the midst of those circumstances. So it's not like God wants us just to grit our teeth and make it through certain seasons, right? What comes into view here is the big picture of worship. And and, and what I need us to understand is worship in and of itself, like 
is directly tied to our experience of mourning and ashes in verse 3. Right? So oftentimes in our own lives, like it, it can be, our experience of worship can be muted, right? I mean, we can have dry seasons and we can cease to be amazed by the grace of God. A lot of times that's because we've pushed down like genuine human emotions, like sorrow over sin, like grief. And, and, and what Isaiah is saying here as he ties those two things together is those things are a prerequisite. Thomas Watson says it like this. He says, for Christ to be sweet, our sin must first be bitter. Right? So there's, a, there's an aspect of our worship is directly tied to what we have been rescued from. Right? I mean, for us to be able to understand the songs that we sing, our hearts have to be in touch with the reality of what's going on in our own heart. And that's why we're so passionate about singing here. It's not just because that's some Christian tradition, but we're trying to remind ourselves through the songs that we sing how great our deliverance is because we so quickly forget. That's the reason that preaching is important. Because this, this growth in godliness that we're talking about in Isaiah 61 verse 3, it's directly tied to hearing the good news. So everything that we do in this service is highlighted so that we can highlight the good news of Jesus through our liturgy, through our songs, through our preaching, through communion. We want everyone to be able to have this good news. So this is a picture of worship being tied to our own deliverance. We don't have to gloss over the ashes. We can experience this. So really what, is, what we're talking about is affections, right? We want everyone to at least on some level fight to be authentic about the truth of who Jesus is. I can't put it any better than what Jared Wilson says in his book, Gospel Wakefulness. This is, this is what he's saying about affections. He says, we all naturally understand affections. An old man may not give two cents about the gospel, but he sure knows how to feel really good when his grandkids come over. A guy who spends 60 hours a week in a cubicle may sit through a church service absolutely unmoved by songs and teaching that his wife insists that he show up for. But he leaps off the couch in joy that afternoon when... When his team scores a much-needed touchdown, a young woman may read the Sermon on the Mount and find it very impressive, but she really lights up when there is a sale at the mall. All of us are moved by something. I only mean that what should move you the most is the reality that Christ died and rose for you. So that's, that's what we're fighting for, is that the truth of Jesus being alive comes alive in, in the very core of our souls. That that makes a difference in how not only we sing and we interact in this room, but how we live life throughout the week. We want to be awakened to the truth because that's the greatest reality in the universe. Okay, I want to close by reading this last part of the verse. It says that they may be called oaks of righteousness... The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So, what comes into view here is the fact that this is God's work, right? We can kind of take a deep breath because oftentimes we think that 
changing ourselves is up to us. But what we actually see is that God is more committed to this than we are. Right? Oftentimes we think that for God to love us, we have to change. We kind of think like that. It's a little bit twisted. We think, if God's going to love me, I have to clean up my act. But what this verse says is, because God loves us, he's committed to changing us. And so that should really give us a, a deep sense of relief as we interact with the truth of the gospel. So a, a couple of things from this final part of the verse For those that have placed their faith and are joined to this message of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, growth is inevitable, right? This is something that God will do. It says that they are the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. This is his work. He's the one that causes the growth. And and that's really important because... In everybody's life in this room, there's going to be times where growth is almost imperceptible to you, right? There's going to be, see- and, and God's really taken me through a season like this. There's, there's a lot of times that growth is going to be a lot of times underneath the surface. I mean, just take this illustration of an oak tree. An oak tree doesn't start out as being an oak tree. It either starts from a, a seedling or an acorn somewhere. I'm not a horticulturist or whatever. But the, the idea is that a lot of times for this massive oak tree that represents longevity and strength and a, a kind of immovability, that's what God says about us. For that to be able to happen, there's a lot of things that take place in the soil, right? There's a massive root system that kind of undergirds an oak tree growing up. And I think that's important when we talk about growth, because growth is not always going to be perceptible to you. But because you're joined to God, and it's His commitment, and it's, it's His work, you can know that it's going to take place, because He's committed to it. So much so that he didn't spare his own son. It also means, um, because we are the planting of the Lord, it means we don't have to be preoccupied with growth. Now, in the South, I mean, this is a real issue, right? I mean, we can go from Bible study to Bible study, um, from small group to small group, from church meeting to church meeting, and the, the, the normal thing that we walk away with most of the time is what? A to-do list, right? The, the laundry list of things that we need to do to be a better wife or a better husband or to be able to be a more effective witness, right? What this verse is, is we don't have to be preoccupied with change. Change is inevitable because we are the planting of the Lord. It is his work that is at work in us. Um, this, this past spring... We planted a garden, and by we, I mean my wife, um, she, she planted a garden, and my son waters it. And we go out ever so often, and we look at the garden, and we enjoy the fruits of it, and we're able to kind of pick some tomatoes and some cucumbers and some things like that. Um, but you know what we didn't do? And this is how we all tend to live the, the Christian life. Like after we planted it, we didn't go back out a week later and pull it up and look at the roots to see if it's growing, right? We didn't do that. Like we let the the soil and the sun and the elements and the water, all those things to cause growth. But for us as Christians, most of us, we're preoccupied. Am I growing? 
Am I changing, right? That's the, that's the theme of almost every kind of Christian meeting that you can go to. And, I, and I've said this before, but it bears saying again, the point of the Christian life is not the Christian, it's the Christ. And as you see him, as you hear this good news for the poor, that is what's going to cause the growth. Growth is inevitable. And then, this is what is amazing. He calls us oaks of righteousness. Are those people righteous? Right? We just talked about it a few minutes ago. They were caught red-handed. He says, you're going to be called oaks of righteousness. How can that be? That's the whole reason that Jesus came into the world. That righteousness is not a righteousness that's their own. It's a righteousness they receive as a gift. And that's the whole reason that they had to have a Messiah and a Redeemer. It's the same reason that we have a Savior. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He made Him who knew no sin, He was sinless, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So hear this as we close. Hear this good news spoken over you. If you're here and you feel like you're a failure, God says you are an oak of righteousness. If you're here and you're most aware of your sins, if you're most aware of patterns of anger, and ambition and sexual impurity. What God says about you if you're joined to Jesus is you are an oak of righteousness. The good news is that we are weak in and of ourselves, but as we are joined to God by faith, he is going to build us into something beautiful. So take courage, church. He is not finished with us. He's not finished with us individually, and he's not finished with us as a church body as we interact with this city. He has good works prepared for us in advance to walk in. It's inevitable because God causes the growth. And we get to sit back. The same thing that we said about the, the, the sports academy. It's the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes, right? It's, it's very easy to want to take credit for our own growth. The truth is God is the one that's committed. God is the one that grows us. God is the one that changes us by giving his one and only son. Let's pray. Thank you for your commitment to us. As a people, thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that this isn't up to us. This isn't about us working something up. This is about your commitment and giving your son to us to grow us and change us. Um, I pray that tangible strength would be imparted as we continue to worship here this morning. Um, I pray that, that patterns of sin and rebellion would be broken and real strength would come from God. Real hope right now would break into this place as the good news of Jesus begins to bear fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.